Intended is brought to you in part by YTH, an initiative of ETR. YTH is a nonprofit that advances the health of youth and young adults through technology, and they're hosting their annual conference virtually on August 3rd through 5th, 2020. YTH Live is in its 12th year, and will focus on youth and technology and the impact of technology on the health of young people. Targeting overall health and wellness of people in the United States and abroad, YTH Live presents how innovative technology can be used to improve health outcomes. Covering topics like sexual and reproductive health, mental health, digital rights, and climate change, YTH Live will showcase the brightest minds and cutting-edge research. To learn more, head to yth.org. Again, that's yth.org. I think some of this is already happening with major cultural shifts like the Me Too movement and talking about consent and how sexual activity is a joint endeavor and both need to enthusiastically consent to it, right? Um, and I think there are parallels to that and procreation and saying, look, we're both responsible for this. This is not something you can just assume because I think there is sometimes this assumption that like, again, contraception is women's responsibility and so she needs to be on it. Lisa Campo-Engelstein is a professor of bioethics. Sure. Uh, my name is Lisa Campo-Engelstein. I am an associate professor in the Bioethics Institute, and I have a secondary appointment. And she works in the area of reproductive ethics and sexual ethics gender norms. She's published articles covering fertility preservation, differences in sex ed, and also male contraception. She spends a lot of time thinking about bringing men and women together as contraceptive users, moving beyond the perception that women take care of all that preventing pregnancy stuff while men are awkward about it or sometimes even against it, if they have any opinions at all. And we, I've seen this in movies where there's this kind of trope of like, you're on the pill, right? Okay, good. Let's have sex. Um, you know, when it is actually talked about in the movies, which is so rare. I mean, when do you ever see them use a condom or talk about contraception? They never do. Unless it's a joke, like, you know, 40-year-old virgin where he like is trying to blow up the condom. He doesn't know how to put it on. Lisa is talking about this idea that contraception for men is sort of a joke, and maybe we can attribute that to the lack of options and awareness. Depending on how you add it up, there are about a dozen contraceptive options for women, not taking into account the variety of brand name and generic products, which may make it seem like there are endless options. Basically, there are pills, implants, intrauterine devices, injectables, patches, vaginal rings, diaphragms, female condoms, and methods that rely on biological events like the lactational amenorrhea method or LAM, and fertility awareness methods. The list for men includes condoms and vasectomy. Contraceptive options for women offer a variety of durations, ranging from short-term, which offer contraceptive protection at the daily or weekly level, medium-term, which lasts around three months, long-term, which lasts in the three to 10-year range, and of course, permanent, as with tubal ligation. Contraceptive options for men, on the other hand, offer durations ranging from protection for a single sex act to permanent. That leaves a pretty big gap in the middle. What's even more frustrating is that even though women seemingly have a plethora of options to choose from, it's generally accepted that most women are using the method they hate the least. I think for a lot of women, that is the case because, you know, look at the population you're dealing with. You're dealing with young, otherwise healthy people, right? And now you're doing some sort of intervention, which can have positive effects, but it can also have negative ones. And 
women are on contraception now for decades. And so I personally have had some friends who have said, you know, I was on the pill for 20 years and now I went off it and realized, oh, like I feel like a totally different person. I didn't realize that my mood swings were related to this or, oh, like I all of a sudden lost 10 pounds and I had no idea that, you know, it was related to the pill. Um, and so I think it's just become so normalized and medicalized that women just become these contraceptive consumers and that becomes part of their identity. Again, that they just don't either sometimes recognize the horror, you know, like the bad parts of it, or they just, again, are told to suck it up, buttercup, right? Like, um, but I think for a lot of women, they do experience these side effects. But again, when they weigh it against the possibility of pregnancy, like it, it makes it worthwhile, but still like, wouldn't it be nice if we had an ideal world where they didn't have these side effects? And there's so many variations of contraception too. So it's not like some women aren't trying. I mean, people are like, you know, they're like, I'll try IUD. I'll do like the shot. I'll do, you know, they're trying these different things. And sometimes none of them are, are great. You know, there's trade-offs. And why do women take on this role? Why are women the primary, often sole users of contraception in a relationship? Women are trained from the time they are young to see themselves as reproductive beings. And I think men are not. I mean, women are medicalized from day one. Um, and it's, you know, like, you need to get your pap smear every year or every three years. You need to do all these things. Like, we are trained to be a good, like, patients. Um, and, and there's no equivalent for men. We could do that, though. Like, we could say to men, like, okay, every year you need to get, like, your repro, you know, health exam or test you for STIs or whatnot. Um, and so I think it's then hard for men to like switch gears completely and see themselves as reproductive beings if they haven't been, you know, enculturated in that way. Lisa's right. There's a culture and an expectation around reproductive health in women that just isn't there for men. Hi, I'm Heather. I'm the executive director of Male Contraceptive Initiative, and today I'm going to be your host on Intended. You see, while contraception empowers women by giving them agency over their own reproductive destiny, it can also be a burden. There's no question that access to contraception has had a profound impact on women's health and rights around the globe, reducing unintended pregnancies, allowing women to complete higher levels of education, to achieve career goals, to achieve economic independence, to manage health issues, and so on. But that agency can come with some pretty hefty physical, emotional, and financial costs. There's an initial calculus to selecting a method that involves assessing effectiveness versus frequency of dosing or duration of use versus route of administration, versus potential side effects, all in the context of a woman's current sexual timeline, which may or may not be static with respect to sexual activity, number of partners, desire if and when to have children in the future, and many other shifting variables. Once a woman finds a method, rare is the instance when she can simply start it and go on about her business. Often multiple attempts are required, shifting doses, changing methods, each requiring at least one visit to a healthcare provider, a waiting period to assess whether side effects are temporary or potentially more burdensome, and all with the knowledge in the back of her mind that she could very well be starting from scratch again in a matter of months. These things add up. There's a substantial mental load associated with being the only person in a relationship responsible for preventing an unintended pregnancy. The invisible and unappreciated work, like remembering to take a pill at the same time every day, or to get your injection every three months, finding the time between work and personal responsibilities to get to provider visits and paying for them, needing to always be prepared for unpredictable bleeding or headaches or skin and other body changes. It's a big responsibility. 
And over time, and time meaning decades, that responsibility can feel like a burden, even considering the benefits. But I think it's surprising to men to realize, you know, if you want, if a woman is on the birth control pill, usually she needs to see her physician at least once a year to get a refill and get everything checked up, right? Um, And that there are these gatekeepers that regulated. I mean, the vast majority of contraception requires some sort of physician involvement or healthcare professional involvement. And so we're talking now time and money and all these, and just also the mental stress of this as well. I don't think men are as familiar with that because it's not something that, you know, they have to do. I think most women have at least some frustration around this topic, feeling like their male partners don't get it, don't understand the time and effort that goes into these things sometimes feeling like it might not be worth it to go through all the hassle or like there's no good solution to a problem that everyone faces. I think that is a common perspective. And because we conflate reproduction in women, we assume that women should, you know, suck it up buttercup and deal with all the consequences. But reproduction isn't just a thing for women. It's a shared experience. As the saying goes, it takes two to tango. And one thing that nearly every woman I've talked to thinks is that male contraceptives, even if they aren't an end-all be-all solution, are a good idea. They're a reminder that just as it takes two to reproduce, it can also take two to prevent an unintended pregnancy. This idea of like unburdening women is a huge one. And the idea that women should just be grateful, going back to kind of where we started, for any option is flawed. Um... And so I think it's important to recognize that, you know, the pendulum maybe has swung too far in one way, because now all the contraceptive options, or at least the ones that are highly effective and long acting and reversible, are women's options. And so it's great. Like, look, the pill was a huge milestone for women's rights, like so important. But at the same time, the fact that women are now expected to take full responsibility is really problematic. Um, And so I think this unburdening of women could be really important. I think this also could, you know, enhance and improve gender norms and like relationships when you can with your male partner, you know, a woman with her male partner say like, honey, it's your turn to be on the pill for a couple of years and then we'll go back and forth or whatnot. Right. Like you can actually foster more equitable partnerships when you have this. All right. So let's just get to it. I know what you're thinking right now. We hear it a lot. Will women trust men to use male contraceptives? I mean, that's a serious question. If a contraceptive method fails, you know who gets pregnant? The person with the uterus? Which also has a lot to do with the fact that contraceptive responsibility has been essentially solely in the hands of women for so long. The person with the penis and sperm? They might have a very different view of risk when thinking about an unintended pregnancy, or at least not the daily sense of risk that is very real for women. So should women trust men to be the person preventing pregnancy? It depends if they are having casual sex or are in a monogamous monogamous relationship. So casual sex, no, definitely not. Monogamous relationship, I hope so. Um, I mean, casual sex can make sense. Like, we're asking you to trust a group. And when you say, like, an entire group, then we tend to defer to dominant cultural tropes. And so then we think of like men as irresponsible with these raging libidos and wanting to have sex with as many people as possible. No way you're going to trust that, right? Um, Because it's really hard to trust a group. But if you are talking about an individual man that you have a relationship with, you've obviously screened him, you know him, you trust him with other things, right? And so, I mean... There's this trope. 
that men are useful to the world in front of a boardroom or being assertive in the public sphere, but becoming competent dorks when it comes to housework or cleaning or things in the private or domestic sense. It's kind of a cynical point of view and one that often disappears when someone's talking about their own partner. It seems so strange to me sometimes when I hear people joking about this. They're like, oh, well, you know, we can't even trust men to take out the garbage. How can we trust him with the pill? But if you're in a serious and healthy monogamous relationship, you presumably trust your partner with all sorts of high stakes things, right? Like, you know, with all sorts of secrets, with your finances, with like, you know, your health care, with lots of things. So this analogy to the garbage, like, sure, we all forget to take out the garbage sometimes, but that's why you're in a partnership and you can say, hey, honey, you forgot to take out the garbage, right? Um, and so I see a lot of men do that with their partners too. Like, did you take your pill this morning? Yep, I did. The fact is all relationships are different. No matter who you are, I hope that if you're in a relationship, you trust your partner and that if you don't, you have the contraceptive options and choices to protect yourself. There's no blanket statement here of, yes, you should trust your partner or no, you shouldn't. The variables that go into the decision to trust your partner with contraception or not hold different weights for different people. And lots of times what matters for one woman doesn't matter for another. Or someone has experiences that shape their opinion, experiences that aren't necessarily shared by their peers. So today we wanted to go into that, to talk about some of those experiences, those variables, and those opinions that shape how women think about male contraception. In the last episode, we talked with three men about their opinions. We asked them about their preferences, their experiences, and their relationships. In this episode, we're going to do something similar, but hear it from the other side. We have three women who, like most of the population, use contraception in some form or fashion. And these women are going to talk us through how they feel about male contraception, their hopes, their frustrations, and yes, their trust. All that coming up. From Male Contraceptive Initiative, this is Intended. I'm Heather Vidat. Support for Intended is provided by Male Contraceptive Initiative, a 501c3 nonprofit that advances the research and development of new methods of male contraception. MCI is the only organization focused solely on the development of reversible, non-hormonal male contraception, and we've granted over $3 million towards research since 2017. MCI is funded entirely through donations from people like you. We harness the public need and voice to champion male contraception. Make your tax-deductible donation today at malecontraceptive.org. Again, you can donate at malecontraceptive.org. Okay, so in our last episode, we talked with three men who are all trying to be part of male contraception as it happens to take part in the next big thing. In this episode, we want to do something similar. We want to bring people into the fold and get to know their backgrounds. Why are they interested in male contraception? What are their hopes? What are their concerns? What do they think the future could look like? I I know male contrac- contraception is this like really tricky space to work in, but everyone I talk to is so excited about it. Like, especially men, when I bring it to them, I'm like, I'm working on this project. And they're like, what? Male contraception? Like, what's going on with that? Let's talk about it. And I'm like, yes, engagement. And for me, that's, that's Betsy Pleasance. Sure. Um, my name is Betsy Pleasance. I work with the YTH initiative at ETR. And, and Betsy works with the YTH initiative at ETR. ETR is a nonprofit that focuses on health and well-being for youth and families. YTH, standing for Youth Tech Health, is an initiative of ETR that focuses on the intersection of young people, health, and new technologies. 
In 2019, Betsy worked on a project centered around male contraception, one that was sponsored by Male Contraceptive Initiative, and sought to really go after the opportunities and the challenges that are a part of targeting today's youth. One of the biggest challenges is that male contraception is still years away. For a drug-based method, likely a decade or more. So today's youth, high schoolers and younger, they'll be the actual users of future male contraceptives. They'll be the ones that really see the benefits of these products. And I think there is a lot of opportunity with young people, certainly, for male contraceptive uptake and for widespread uptake. And if we're talking about unintended pregnancies, particularly, the mind will often go to young people. So what sort of challenges and opportunities did they find? Well, they found that young men were interested in taking on a role in contraception, that young men wanted to be responsible and to feel protected for themselves. But the report also showed that these young men were worried about stigma, about having multiple options, and about side effects. Basically, they were worried about a lot of the same things that are a part of existing contraceptive method use. And this trust thing, would you trust your partner to use contraception? It came up again. So as a woman, I was expecting to see the presence of this mistrust um, or like a kind of skepticism of male contraception present in the research that we were doing. But I think what surprised me is that we not only found it in the scientific literature that we reviewed and in our kind of exploration of research that's been done, it's a consistently asked question, like, would you trust men to use contraception? Um, But it also was reiterated by the youth that we talked to. Um, in a kind of defensive way, in a way that the young women who are present in one of our workshops said, the burden is on me, so I don't trust men to be responsible for this. And I think that that's an important realization as we're talking about having these conversations in the broader time span, that this issue isn't going away. And the way that we are seeing mistrust happening is probably going to be recreated and has to be addressed in this conversation about launching male contraception. And I think that really surprised me because I kind of expected, like, had this idealistic view of youth that, like, they are somehow, like, beyond our limitations (laughs) um, from my generation, which is not that far from theirs. But the reality is they they feel a lot of the same challenges and weight that we have, that I did as a contraceptive user when I was 17. Um, And that was really surprising for me. It all goes back to that same point that trust, no matter if it's trusting a partner or trusting a contraceptive method or trusting yourself to be responsible, it's all very dependent on the person in the situation. So how do we measure that? There have been a few studies that have looked into this, into if a woman would trust their male partner to use contraception. The largest study included a mix of about 2,000 married and cohabitating people across continents and demographics, and an overwhelming majority of women, sometimes more than 90%, thought that a male pill was a good idea, and 80% said they would use a male contraceptive method in the future. This question is one of the two most common questions that come up in male contraception. Will women trust their partners to use a method? The second question is whether or not men would actually be interested in using more methods if they became available. That's the one we talked about in the last episode. These questions are really similar in that they focus on stereotypes of men and women, that men are irresponsible and lazy, and that women are controlling and emotional. This even flies in the face of data that men will use contraceptives and women will trust them to. It's an inaccurate stereotype that somehow persists. 
There are other studies that show women who are in trusting monogamous relationships would trust their male partner to use contraception. This makes sense considering most of the time you get to that trust by living with a person, getting to know them, building a relationship with them. Yeah, I would trust that my partner can either A, take a pill or get a shot. Obviously, we have a mortgage together. Like, yeah, the partner trusts at this point. Like, you know, we both make the mortgage payment. So let's both not have a kid. Like, we agree on that. So for me, that trust thing is like not a big problem. But if I was 20. This is Emily. And she's the second woman I'd like to introduce you to. Emily is a graduate student working on her PhD. Pads and to run the analysis through MATLAB and stuff like that. She's in the engineering department, and she's at the intersection of a lot of cool things having to do with imaging and optics and healthcare all rolled together. She's in her 30s, focused on her work, on building her career, and is definitely not interested in having a child right now. But like a lot of men and women, she's found that the current contraceptive options just don't work well for her. I mean, for me personally, like I was taking birth control, and my partner never has. I'm like, well, why is that? Like, you want to do this more than me? Like, make it worth my while not having to like do all this stuff. Like, cause I did the IUD and that was really bad for my body. Personally, it works for other people maybe, but there wasn't education around it. Unfortunately, Emily's experiences with contraception are not uncommon. She didn't feel like she got the counseling she needed with a provider to make a good choice. And all that time and effort went into picking something that didn't work for her. She also didn't really feel like she got a fair shake. Despite all the issues raised around access and affordability in contraception, one less frequently discussed challenge in the current system is provider bias, the ability of providers to act as a gatekeeper, to issue or withhold a contraceptive recommendation based on their own subjective judgment. There's a historical precedent for this. When the pill first came out, there are accounts of single women borrowing or buying wedding bands to convince their doctor that they were married, which made it, at least in the social context of the time, ethical to use birth control. Nowadays, this is most often seen when women seek permanent contraception, like tubal ligation. What are my options? I can try to find a doctor um, who will do a sterilization procedure, but they don't really want to do it unless you've had children, you're married, you hit these criteria because they go by like what the literature says, what the doctors do, you know? Oh, well, we see regret rates are increased if you aren't married and you get this done. I don't get, you know, I can go get plastic surgery. What about my regret rates for, you know, breast implants? That's not talked about. But suddenly for, you know, this, that takes away my own individual autonomy, you know, like about my own body. Like I can't do anything. Emily feels stuck. She's tried different methods and they've all come with side effects or other challenges that don't work for her lifestyle. And she's frustrated. Frustrated with the healthcare system, frustrated with societal expectations, and frustrated that there isn't even one male option that her partner could try. Then, I don't know. I mean, I would, I would pay my hard-earned money for my partner to do it if it was like the best option. Like we came to the table and I was like, okay, well, I tried five. You've tried zero. You want to do one? We'll see how that goes. I get this frustration. In this day and age of tech innovations and next generation healthcare, shouldn't the choice of if and when to have children be the hard part? Like, once you've made that decision, if and when to have kids, shouldn't the rest of it be easy? Like, okay, we've got these tools and here's where they are and how to use them and that's it. Congratulations on your decision. Now go forth and carry it out. 
any man or woman should get that. The ability to have kids when your relationship, career, finances, your life is the way you want it to be. I mean, I'm 20. Like, I don't want to be having a family till I'm like set. That's perfectly normal in my eyes. I mean, my mum had me when she was 40. There's five kids in my family and it's great. And I think really setting, I mean, the career path I'm going down is going to be a long one. This is Connie, and she's the last person I'll introduce you to today. Connie is studying at Duke University. She's originally from the UK, and she's pre-med with aims of becoming an OBGYN. I'm, I mean, I'm also a swimmer. She's captain of the swim team, and she's motivated, getting involved with extracurriculars and groups even outside of her rigorous training and academic schedule. She's also one of the founding members of Male Contraceptive Initiative's Youth Advisory Board, together with Tyrone, who we spoke to in the last episode. At her stage in life, 20 years old, she thinks there's a lot in front of her before she's ready to even start the kids' conversation. Like, I'm not going to have got my medical degree for one another, like, six, seven years, so I'll be 27. I, I want to be stable in a job and really focusing on my career and where I'm going to be and where I'm going to live, like, what country, all that kind of stuff. So I think it's so important to me because I don't want to miss out on my relationship and like my partner and all of that but at the same time like I'm definitely putting my career first in that respect like I don't I don't want kids right now now Connie's contraceptive experience may be a little different than some partly because she comes from the UK where there are different contraceptives different cultures different means of access but also different because she's an athlete being a part of the swim team is really like uh, it's you talk about it a lot with the girls in your swim team. You share a locker room. You're always around them. Like, each other's bodies are no, like, big thing. Mm-hmm. And so, and also with swimming, like, being on your period and swimming is a bloody nightmare. Like, it really is. And um, so it's constantly people discussing, like, what kind of contraception are you on? Which is best for you? And I came in to Duke with an IUD. Um, I got it back home. It's free. Like, it's easy. And no one on the swim team had one. They were either taking the pill or had the implant. And for swimming, that's just not ideal because you're affecting your whole body. And if you're on a hormonal pill and you're trying to train four hours a day, it's really not okay. Like that's why I ended, I had the IED because of that. Like it just makes you feel crap. And if you're trying to be a high performance athlete, which all these girls are, um, it's just not the one to do. And so I started, I mean, most of them have never heard about it. I mean, I guess the sex ed is just lacking. I don't know. Connie started proselytizing the IUD among her teammates, or more specifically, the hormonal IUS or intrauterine system. And a few of them ended up getting one for themselves. They've found a method that works for them at this point in their life. And this is an important piece we haven't talked about yet. No method will be the single perfect method for every woman because all women are different. Emily found the IUD didn't work for her, but it did work for Connie. To complicate things further, No single contraceptive method is likely to be perfect for even an individual woman because our reproductive and contraceptive desires change throughout the course of our lives. Connie may not always be a competitive swimmer, and if she ever stops, her contraceptive needs might change. Despite the number of contraceptive options for women, there may be times when none of the available options actually meet the needs of a user, or as is the case for many women, they may find that they're never able to find a method that works for them. That means that there's a gap in the method mix, 
a need to continue developing and improving upon methods for women, but also an opportunity for expanding male contraceptive options to help address that gap. So if a woman can't find the right method, there's an opportunity for her male partner to contribute options from his side. Despite the number of contraceptive options for women, there may be times when none of the available options actually meet the needs of a user. Or, as is the case for many women, they may find that they're never able to find a method that works for them. That means that there's a gap in the method mix, a need to continue developing and improving upon methods for women, but also an opportunity for expanding male contraceptive options to help address that gap. So if a woman can't find the right method, there's an opportunity for her male partner to contribute options from his side. If we had more options and if we had male options, the landscape of contraception would look completely different, which I think indicates that it's not working as it is in some way. That's Betsy again. She worked on a report centered on male contraceptives in youth. For me, personally, when I think of male contraception, I think of an opportunity more than anything else. And this potential for providing men with a new type of power that also supports women in the process. And I think that's really exciting for me. These are women looking to share responsibility, to find ways to communicate with their partners and achieve the same goals around family planning together. It's not that male methods need to replace female options or that there needs to be a wholesale upending of contraceptive use. It's just that another option is needed to really create a healthy culture around the obligations that go with relationships, to create an atmosphere where men are given an option and then they and their partners can decide if it's the best route for them. Here's Emily again. I feel like Every girl I ask would want this option. Every guy will be like, well, I I guess. Whereas like women are like, yes, is that CVS? Can I buy it now? Even though Emily tried tons of options, none really seemed to be a fit for her. She thinks about getting men involved in reproductive health. And like we've heard before, she thinks that the lack of male contraceptive options has led to an atmosphere where men just don't have to take part in the conversation. I also think no one's ever expected them. We don't expect someone to like amount to anything or something. They probably won't, right? So like um, I see this a lot with like, you know, different parents and different, you know, like kids. Like what did they, did they expect their kids to go to college? They never expect their kids to go to college. Shocker, the kid didn't go to college, you know. So like we never expected men to play a role. And now we're shocked they don't. Having more methods of male contraception will be a game changer. From a business perspective, being the first male contraceptive on the market, being an option that gives female contraception some real competition could have a profound impact. But I also mean this in terms of the social sphere, in terms of relationships, in terms of getting men to be more actively involved in this seemingly private world that has for so long been only the domain of women. After the break, we're going to dig into this a bit more how male contraceptives could potentially change how both men and women approach relationships and equity. Stay with us. Support for Intended is provided by Male Contraceptive Initiative, a 501c3 nonprofit that advances the research and development of new methods of male contraception. MCI offers opportunities to scientists who are working in male birth control. Aaron was an academic looking for his next job when he got a fellowship from MCI. Well, I have to say that I feel very, very fortunate. I don't know if I've actually told you guys how critical that this fellowship actually is for, for, my, uh, for being able to push the project forward, but it really, really was. Um, so I was at a point about a year and a half ago where we were just going to have to sort of cut it loose. 
and, um, and and then all of a sudden this fellowship opportunity came about and it allowed me to continue the work and and now it's led to uh, the next phase of my career as well so now Aaron's working for a company that's making a male birth control option. For more information on MCI and our programs, visit malecontraceptive.org. That's malecontraceptive.org. Welcome back to Intended, the podcast where we tell you how men and women alike are looking forward to a future of contraceptive equity. I'm your host today, Heather Vidat. We just introduced you to three women, Betsy, Emily, and Connie. Betsy is a researcher in California, has a master's in public health, and has taken part in putting together a report on male contraceptives in youth. Emily is a graduate student in Tennessee, and Connie is pre-med and captain of the swim team at Duke University in North Carolina. All of these women have had their own contraceptive experiences. They're interested in male methods of contraception because they're finding, at least right now, that their contraceptive needs aren't being met or they love their current method of birth control or use it for non-contraceptive benefits, but they think that male methods of birth control can create a new dynamic in the world. A new dynamic in relationships where men more clearly understand and sympathize with their partner's contraceptive journey. I guess like guys, maybe men just don't know how bad it is for their partners. Like maybe because some birth controls are like good enough, you know, I don't know. Like I wonder why men- That's Emily again. You'll recall that she's had some bad experiences with IUDs, has tried multiple birth control methods, but has yet to find one that works for her. You want to do one? We'll see how that goes. And she's expressing something that I've heard from both men and women alike. In our last episode, he said, we talked to men who all expressed that they really didn't have a good idea of what their female partners go through. They don't have a clear understanding of what reproductive health means and how it can be a mental, physical, financial, and time burden. And women can be frustrated by that, feel like they're exhausting their options trying to get what feels like basic health care and having to do it all alone. But the women I talked to all saw male contraception as an opportunity, a way to get men more involved in reproduction, a way to increase empathy for the sorts of things that have historically been shouldered by women. Here's what Connie had to say. I think the gender dynamics will be, I think it can only be a good thing to a certain extent, because... I mean, it's, it brings such a quality to having that responsibility of child-rearing and childbirth and just being cognizant of every time you have sex. And I think women are aware of this. Every time you have sex, there's almost a risk that you could create life. And I think in this current climate and the way that birth control is and the fact that the woman is worrying about birth control and not necessarily the man, they don't see it that way. So I think having there be an option of male contraception and them knowing they have a responsibility to prevent pregnancy, being cognizant of every single time you have sex, you have the possibility of producing and creating life, which is nuts. And so I think having a male contraception or having a duality between the two is gonna make that just so much more a part of a relationship as opposed to a one-sided kind of thing. Because, I mean, I don't know I mean, personally, in the relationships I've had, it's never been much the male concern. It's always been me worrying about whether I need to take the morning after pill or me worrying about whether I need to do, you know, take the pregnancy test or all that kind of stuff. Because it, I mean, that's just the nature of a reproductive organ. However, it shouldn't be one-sided because it does take two to do that. 
Betsy echoed this and added that in the YTH report, men expressed interest in flipping the script on gender dynamics as well. We saw a strong interest from youth in the workshops we did in this idea of empowerment for men within a recognition that women bear too much weight in the current conversation around contraception and, and contraceptive responsibility. Um, so men want to feel empowered to control their own reproduction um, and to feel safe, but also have a real interest in shifting, shifting the dynamics that currently exist around the way that contraception is used in their partnerships and want to support women by being able to engage more actively in contraceptive use. Male methods of birth control have the ability to bridge a divide between men and women. Reproduction has long been thought of as being in the female domain. And for us, for women, it's been an issue primarily around autonomy, of collecting agency where historically we haven't had any. And because of this, men haven't had to participate in reproduction, or more specifically contraception, to the same degree. They've been able to be supportive from the sidelines because they don't have anything to lose by letting women play the game and be the ones doing the contracepting. But we've made progress in creating agency and using contraception as a tool to be able to choose if and when to have children, to make progress in our careers, and to push for women's rights. So now it's time for phase two, to extend that progress to include men, offering them that same reproductive autonomy and helping them shift to becoming supporting partners in the process of contracepting and family planning. Just thinking about female contraception and the fact that there was this kind of necessity in contraception with women. It's like this need to protect, this need to gain some control so that if you need to prevent pregnancy, you are capable. And that in some ways does seem higher priority than men like contracepting. And I kind of get that being a preliminary step in the process of male contraceptive development. But I think that we can't stop where we are. We have to keep going. I've always seen contraception as a journey. And really, we're only partway down the path. Female methods of contraception were phase one. We had the greatest need and desire to prevent pregnancy, and methods needed to be developed quickly and effectively that built agency and autonomy for women, even if they weren't ideal. But those methods were developed. We have the pill, IUDs, implants, injectables, all of it. And now we're solidly ready for phase two, a phase where methods need to be improved upon, access to existing methods expanded, and men need to be brought into the equation as well. There are other phases for the future, like creating multi-purpose prevention technologies that combine contraception with STI prevention, or creating completely novel methods using state-of-the-art advancements in drug delivery. But today is about bringing contraceptive equity to everyone. Like having options so that, yeah, the um, female co- cohort could take contraception if and when they want, but it can also be um, the male counterparty takes it. And I, so I think just having it not just be leaning one way or the other, I think it being, well, what do you two want to do? Like, do you want to split the responsibility? And just having more choice as opposed to just being like really narrow. And just, yeah, I think it'll be really cool. I think the opportunity for me really feels like generational norms are really shifting super quickly. So we have young people who are interested in engaging in relationships differently and educating themselves in being politically active and socially aware. And that all together, along with the potential for men to take care of themselves and have safe and pleasurable sex feels like a real opportunity for me. 
Betsy and Connie are both seeing the upside in male methods of birth control and getting men on the same page as them so that in their relationships or in their friends' relationships, men and women can decide together which method works best for them. It wouldn't be so much as, well, that's my option and I just need to live with it sort of scenario, but an approach that requires communication and openness and brings men into the fold. And while the future is optimistic, the right now can be frustrating, knowing that we're still years away from men being able to have more options. Emily really zeroed in on this. Like my boyfriend's like several years younger than me. And so every time I talk about like, and I'm like, well, how come it's just me? Like, you know, I don't know. He's like, well, I don't want a vasectomy because maybe I'll want to have kids. I'm like, okay, well, we're back. We're back here. You know, like, like I have to figure out what I can tolerate. And it's like, I can tolerate abstinence. So whatever, like I, you know, like, is that the point you want to get to in a relationship? Not what I, I thought abstinence would be like, what you do in high school. She's in graduate school, focused on her education and building a career and on the future. For her, the right now is frustrating. I don't know. I, I never even knew how important like this would be for me, you know, in my life. Cause like, obviously if I had a kid, I wouldn't be able to swing a PhD. It's like, it really determines the course of history. The pill really determines the course of history. The next birth control for men that works and they take will determine a lot of things, I think. The male pill or male birth control or male whatever new form of contraception, it's going to change the lives of men for sure, but it'll also change the lives of women. It will give us the ability to contracept without taking contraception if we choose. It will give us avenues to open up conversations with partners that we may not have had before. It'll give them insight into our reproductive lives, which right now they're a little undereducated in. More than anything, it'll give them the ability to participate in this thing that we think is so important. And I'm hopeful that it fosters empathy in this world that can honestly be fraught with controversy. I have one last clip for you from Connie that I just love. Hearing her talk about her boyfriend, her friends, and why this is so important to her. That's kind of why I'm with him, obviously. And so hearing him really up for it, just like, oh God, that gives me such like confidence in like the future. Obviously, that's not the only relationship like it's going to be everywhere. It's going to be ubiquitous that men will take on that role. And it's going to be like completely revolutionary and just completely reformative for women everywhere. Like it's going to affect all of us. And then speaking to the boys and the men in my life, it's, it's, I mean, I guess I am in a bit of a bubble, but hearing them talk about it is nice and wanting an option so that they can know in themselves that they're doing something to prevent having a child, because it's going to be their child as well. Just because you carry it doesn't mean it's not someone else's. So next week, we're going to put a wrap on things. Last week, we talked to the guys, and we talked to the women in this episode. So now it's time we practice what we preach. Next time, we'll be bringing people together in the same room to do we said. Get it? He said, she said, we said. Yeah. So all that stuff about communication, empathy, and so on comes to the surface when we talk with men and women who are actually using male contraceptives right now in clinical trials, how it's impacted their lives, their ideas of contraception, and the way they think about such a personal thing in their relationship. That's next time on Intended. Special thanks for this episode goes out to Katherine Carpenter and the Male Contraceptive Initiative Board of Directors. Additional thanks to Rachel Kowalczyk, Elaine Listener, 
yth.org, and of course, Emily, Connie, Betsy, and Lisa. Music from Blue Dot Sessions. Intended is written and produced by Logan Nichols and Kevin Shane out of the offices of Male Contraceptive Initiative in Durham, North Carolina. I'm Heather Vidot. Intended is a project of Male Contraceptive Initiative, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to advancing the development of reversible non-hormonal contraceptive options for men. For more information or to donate to our cause, visit malecontraceptive.org. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and other social networks by searching Male Contraceptive. If you'd like to see the report that Betsy worked on, the one that focused on landscaping around youth and male contraception, head on over to our website, malecontraceptive.org, and check under Resources. If you'd like Intended, tell your friends about us. Leave us a review on iTunes, share us on social media, all of it. We'd love to hear what you think. Thanks for listening. And now for something completely different. Mm-hmm.